Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. We're jumping into the first chapter of Daniel today. Here we go, Nikki. We're going to cover the whole chapter. We are. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) Yeah. That's unusual for us. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my. As you've studied through this chapter, Nikki, did you have any reactions right off the bat? Did you have any memories of what you thought about chapter one and Daniel and his friends and the king's table as an Adventist? Well, as an Adventist, I don't think I ever just read through the book of Daniel or even Daniel chapter one. My memory is of the books, the children's oh, books. Of course. And I, I sent you a picture yes, you did. of Daniel. Boy, talk about a blast <laughs> from the past. So it was all shaped by those books. Mm-hmm. And of course, I thought that Daniel refusing to eat from the king's table was about food laws. Me too. And I now very much enjoy reading Daniel and seeing how incompatible that idea is with Scripture. I know. I'm pretty shocked that this chapter of this Old Testament prophet has become like the standard, even if you didn't read a lot of Ellen White, it's kind of the standard that every little kid learns for not drinking wine and eating meat. Yeah, and it seems that even other denominations have picked up on this Daniel diet fad. Right. I know Rick Warren started one and had a book published, and it's a 40-day Daniel diet. And they use the book of Daniel. They use this chapter as their justification for that Daniel diet. And that kind of thing is not in this chapter. No, it's not. And it's taking the Lord's word in vain to use it for your purposes like that. I agree. What do you think we should do here, Nikki? Um, Maybe we should actually read something from Daniel so that people know what we're talking about and can refresh them and they can remember their own PTSD as we read it and we'll talk through it. Yes, and and before we do that, let's just remind anyone who didn't listen last week that we have an introduction that will give you the full context of what was going on at the time that this letter was written. That's a really important place to begin. It is, because you'll see that the fact that Daniel is writing from Babylon was something that God foretold, and it was God's doing that got them there. And we'll talk more about that as we go through this. So, Nikki, why don't we just dive right in, and could you read Daniel 1, verses 1 to 7 for us, please, and we'll just talk through it. Yeah, so I'm reading through with the NASB. Okay. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food, and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, As we said last week, Nikki, this whole book begins in the year 605 BC, and I really urge you to listen to last week's podcast if you didn't hear it yet, because you'll learn that there were three invasions of Babylon into Judah before it was completely destroyed, the temple destroyed, the city of Jerusalem destroyed, and Daniel and his three friends were taken in the first invasion, which was 605 BC. So that's the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. This was the king that was sitting on the throne of Judah at the time Nebuchadnezzar invaded. And 
this is what happened. He took some of the best and the brightest of those Israelite young men to go into the service of the king. And then we learn what it is that Nebuchadnezzar's plan is. He's going to Babylonize them. But before we move into what Nebuchadnezzar was doing, Nikki, what stands out to you in verse 2 about God himself? I think we have to start here because as Adventists, we did not learn Daniel from the perspective that God is sovereign. Mm -mm. We basically learned that the story of Daniel became what it was because Daniel was so wise and good and determined and self-disciplined. Yeah. But that's not what the story is about. Yeah. Daniel was all about Daniel. Dare to be a Daniel. Yeah. Dare to stand alone. Yeah. It's about what Daniel did. And Daniel was a faithful man, but it was because of his faithful God. My favorite discovery through learning the book of Daniel from good Bible teachers was how profoundly sovereign God is. We see here in verse 2 that it was the Lord who handed the king of Judah over to Nebuchadnezzar, along with these precious vessels from his temple. Isn't that amazing? It's not like the pagan king overpowered all the efforts of the godly Jews and they managed to win. God gave this stuff, and these things were declared holy by God himself. And he did this knowing how this would be perceived by Babylon, how this would be perceived by Nebuchadnezzar, that their God triumphed over the God of Israel. That didn't bother him because he knew what was real and what was happening. He was sovereignly in control of all of this. You know what that reminds me of? Hmm. I've been reading through the coming week Sabbath school lesson for our commentary that we always write for the proclamation blog every week, Mm -hmm. which is sometimes a very upsetting and annoying thing to do because of how the Adventists talk. But one of the things I just read was a question. How do you explain to what lengths will God go to allow us to misunderstand Him in order to accomplish His will? How much will God let us misunderstand Him? You know, that's not even the question. God is not worried about us understanding or misunderstanding Him. God is not worried about us vindicating or not vindicating His reputation. God is God, and He has His sovereign plan already determined. There is no plan B, and how we think of Him is actually not the point. Well, and that question betrays the fact that... I mean, they have it in their own fundamental beliefs that, you know, God knows the heart and he determines those who are his. And so those of us who who know all this truth, we're responsible for it. But yeah. the people who don't know this truth, he gives them kind of a pass. A pass, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there needs, so how much of a pass do people get? Also generates the question, how hard do we need to evangelize? I mean, there's so much behind it for them. But the fact of the matter is scripture shows that God holds us accountable for what he's revealed to us in his word. That's right. He holds us accountable and he expects us to obey his word, to obey him. And there are consequences if we don't. And that brings me to one more thing, Nikki. We were talking about this with Richard right before we recorded And we've had people say that when we do this podcast, we sound condescending and that we are, um, well, fundamentalist and some phrases that are somewhat uncomplimentary. And that's okay. But I want to say, if we sound condescending, it's not actually condescending in the way the word is defined. What you may be hearing is our extreme frustration with the way Adventism has taken God's Word and redefined it. And we are, I hope, standing firmly on our belief and conviction and experience that God's Word cannot fail. It is inerrant. It tells us the truth. Its words mean what the words say. And there's no two ways to interpret clarity. That's shown in God's Word. Now, to be sure, God's Word doesn't clarify every detail. He doesn't tell us all the details of the things He talks about to us. But where He is clear, we have to be clear. And Adventism has taken that clarity that God has given us in His Word, like this place right here where it says, God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into His hand. That's a clear statement that God is sovereign. And Adventism has said, God limits His power. 
God may appear to be sovereign, but we actually, with our free will, have the last word because He depends on us to uphold His reputation. Yeah, and I think that's part of what jumps out at me here in this verse, that God would allow Nebuchadnezzar to have his king and the vessels from his temple and not clarify that this is him allowing it. Yeah. (laughs) Let's Nebuchadnezzar believe what he believes about this. (laughs) To me, that really shines a light on the error of our responsibility to vindicate God's character to the watching universe because it's so important for everyone to know the truth about God. Well, God has a purpose that goes far outside of our sense of time. That's right. And God is the one who reveals himself. And I think that was one of my big surprises as I started to see that scripture was taught to me inside out in a way. When I started understanding that Jesus was Jesus and fully God, and when I started understanding that I had learned to read scripture through a lens of a worldview determined by Ellen White's interpretations, and I hadn't even known it. When I started to understand that, one of the things that jumped out at me was, it's not up to me to make sure everybody hears the truth. It's up to me to make use of every opportunity God gives me and to speak the truth about God when He gives me that chance. But it is God who reveals Himself. I can trust the nations to Him. I don't have to worry about that person out in Timbuktu and then make an excuse for how they can be saved if they haven't heard quotes the gospel. God knows how to give them the truth. He reveals Himself. And I think some of those questions that they're asking in the Sabbath School commentary reflect the heart of someone who doesn't know God. I agree with you completely. And and those questions need to be answered for them so they can know, you know, what is their responsibility? What is God doing? What do I have to do to please Him? To be, They're still wrestling with that. Yes, they are. They are. And I want to mention one other thing here in verse 2 that I did not understand in the past either. But notice that it says, that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he, this is Nebuchadnezzar, brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Well, you know what's so interesting about Shinar is that way back in Genesis, we learn that the Tower of Babel was built on the plain of Shinar. And that is the capital of Babylon, where Nebuchadnezzar has his temple to his God. That has been an unbroken religion, an unbroken worldview since Babel. Shinar was the seat of Babylon. You might be a former Adventist if you pronounce it the Tower of Babel. Oh, you're right! (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Babel! (laughs) Tower of Babel. I forgot. (laughs) Yeah, I I forget that too. Christians hear us say Tower of Babel and they wonder what we mean. It's foreign to them. (laughs) Yes, that's so funny. Thank you for pointing that out. (laughs) Okay, so then we move on to verses three and four, and we learn that there is a man named Ashpenaz, who's the chief of the officials. Now, you know, some translations and actually it's a legitimate translation. Instead of saying chief of the officials, an alternate translation of that word is actually the chief of eunuchs. And some translations will actually interpret it that way. So, when we read it that way, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his eunuchs, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. What do we know about Daniel and his friends based on what we learn in verses 3 and 4. That they're noble. I didn't know that before. I didn't either. Isn't that fascinating? It's really neat. In fact, it even says in verse 3, including some of the royal family. That would be of the tribe of Judah, of the kingly line. Now, it's fascinating that this is what the Bible tells us because we're right in the middle of a story here that involves God destroying the nation of Judah, God destroying the capital of Judah, which is Jerusalem, and destroying ultimately his temple so that there's no vestige left of the nation of Judah. And he allowed for the royal family and the nobles, the children of the royal family and the nobles to be taken into Babylon, to be Babylonized. 
So if they're taken into the custody of a man who is the chief of eunuchs, that raises a question, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. People have wondered if perhaps they had become eunuchs. You know, I looked that up because the Bible doesn't tell us. And it's often not talked about, probably because it doesn't tell us. But there was a really interesting thing I found on gotquestions.org, and I've come to trust their analysis. They're generally very fair. They give all sides to a story, and they don't try to take a position that is not given in Scripture. But this is what it said. The Bible doesn't say whether Daniel was made a eunuch. However, Daniel served as a slave in Babylon during a time in which many slaves were castrated and made eunuchs. Therefore, some have suggested Daniel was castrated as well. And then it goes on. There are certain indicators from Scripture to support the view Daniel was made a eunuch. First, he was never married. There's no account of Daniel marrying, of having children, as there was of other people that God allowed to go into pagan kingdoms, such as Joseph, such as Moses. Mm -hmm. We learned of their children. Second, as mentioned, he was a slave in a time and place where castration of slaves was common. And now here was an interesting detail that I didn't know. Third, 2 Kings 20 verse 18 indicates that some of Hezekiah's descendants, now remember Hezekiah, was a good king, a very well-known, long-lived king of Judah, who loved God and did reforms in Judah, that some of his descendants would one day be taken from Israel to serve in the place of the king of Babylon as eunuchs. And here's the verse. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood that will be born to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And then, of course, this verse, Daniel 1.3, indicates that Daniel and his friends were under the authority of the chief eunuch or the chief of the officials. But eunuch is a valid translation of that word. So, with all of this as background, we might rightly conclude that Daniel very possibly was made a eunuch, as were his three friends. Second Kings 20.18 is very compelling for that. It is for me, too. So that has a lot of implications as I think through the story as it unfolds. Because one thing we did learn in the law back in Leviticus is that one of the laws God established in his covenant was that no male Israelite who had a crushed testicle or any kind of damage in that regard was allowed to participate in temple worship. They were excluded from the house of God because of this physical defect. Nobody with any kind of a physical defect of the testicles was allowed to serve as a priest if he was in the line of the priests. It was very, very clear. So for Daniel to have been made a eunuch, but to be God's man in Babylon, giving us this really significant book is actually kind of big. It's a really big deal and something worth considering. There's nothing that any human government can do to us that can remove our ability to trust God and be faithful to Him. That's right. Nothing they do to our bodies. And in fact, that's what we are learning as we look at this chapter. It's not what goes into our body or what happens to our body that determines if God will bless us or if we can know Him well. I think it's interesting that He wanted these young men to be intelligent and wise and have all of this knowledge, how were they to discern this? I, You know, you can't help but wonder how they went through and determined who they were going yeah. to take, but they clearly did a good job. That's right. So, as they are taken into the house of the chief of the officials, we learn in verses 5 through 7 that our first crisis occurs for these young men in Babylon. In verse 5, we learn that the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's food. And then in verse 6, we learn that what their names were, what their parents had named them. And then in verse 7, we learn that Nebuchadnezzar authorized a change of name. Now, let's deal with the names first. Okay. Nikki, what did their Jewish names mean? Well, Daniel meant God is my judge. And his name was changed to Belteshazzar, which means may Bel protect his life. Bel being a pagan god, sometimes called Marduk. And then Hananiah, 
His name meant Yahweh is gracious, and his name was changed to Shadrach, which meant servant of a coup, who was the moon god. Mishael, which is similar to Michael, Mm -hmm. is a question. It means who is like God. And his name was changed to Meshach, which means who is like a coup, the moon (laughs) god. Azariah meant the Lord is my help, and his name was changed to Abednego, servant of Nebo. And Nebo was the name for Nebuchadnezzar, who claimed to be a god. That's right. So all of these men, these at least these four that are dealt with in this chapter, we're all given names honoring pagan gods. And I think it's really interesting that they didn't rebel at that. They accepted those names. Yeah, that didn't bother them. And the fact that they were meant to be educated in the way of the Chaldeans. They had to learn this incredibly polytheistic, paganistic view of science and law and literature. They were going to be inundated with this worldview. Well, they were attempting to change their worldview, but they clearly didn't allow it. Yeah, (laughs) They weren't afraid. They weren't afraid of knowledge. That's right. They weren't afraid of a name change. It didn't defile them. And that fascinates me because that was not how we thought in Adventism. No. You did not open that book. You did not ask that question. You did not wonder about that. Because it would be against what we know is truth. Or we could be deceived. Yeah. I mean, they were studying things that were influenced by Satan. That's right. And there was no fear of defilement because they knew the God they served. Yeah. Literature and knowledge did not threaten them. And the fact that they were being, quotes, Babylonized, if you will, that they were being taught to think like Babylonians and live like Babylonians and identify as Babylonians... And ultimately to be superior in all the ways of even of the fortune tellers and the magicians. They learned all that, Mm -hmm. but they didn't draw the line on that because they still internally served God. Yeah. It's worth reminding people, these were young men. Yes. Gary said that they were about middle school aged. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. They were teenagers and maybe young teenagers who, can you imagine especially knowing that these young men had grown up believing and knowing the law of God for Israel and knowing the terms and conditions of worship of Yahweh to be eunuchized, to be Babylonized, to be given pagan names, and yet knowing that they served God and staying loyal to Him. It was not an external thing. What they did to their bodies could not defile them, which brings us to The other thing that the king appointed for them, what was that? Special food from his own table, food from his table, and the wine that he drank. So, Nikki, would you read verses 8 through 17, please? And then we will hear how this all played out, because this became a huge issue. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the presence of the youths who are eating the king's choice foods, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice foods. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. So, Nikki... What is going on here? And what did you learn about what was going on here? Why did Daniel draw the line at food? Well, we don't actually know. It doesn't say. 
And I think that's important. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) It is important. That's one of the wonderful privileges of being a believer (laughs) is we can say we don't know when God doesn't tell us. We don't need a prophet. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't say, and I appreciated Gary as he was thinking through why this might be. He pointed out it doesn't make sense to say that this has to do with Old Testament food laws right? because there was no food law against wine. That's right. But he wasn't going to drink the wine that the king drank. Mm -hmm. And we also know that God commanded for Daniel to eat the Passover lamb. So it wasn't about vegetarianism. I know he asked for vegetables only, but you might say that was fasting. Mm -hmm. He wasn't making a statement about meat eating. No. And I think that is the big important thing. Daniel's resistance to the meat of the king's table was not necessarily about the mosaic food laws. Now, we might say that there was a concern because of the fact that the mosaic food laws did forbid unclean meat, but that's not even specified here. What it actually says is that Daniel wouldn't eat the meat from the king's table or drink the wine from the king's table. So it seems that the issue was more that this was coming from the king's table than that it had anything to do with being against the Mosaic law. Because let's think about it. He and his friends were already submitting to those three years of being taught pagan stuff to go into the service of a pagan king. So it doesn't seem that this passage is teaching us anything about the Jewish food laws. It apparently has more to do with what? Defiling, a sin issue. He feels that doing this would be participating in something that would defile him. And I can only speculate, Mm -hmm. but the fact that Abednego's name means servant of Nebo and that Nebuchadnezzar was like a god. I can't help but wonder if the food that the king ate and the wine that the king drank was like partaking in offerings that had been given to him as a godlike figure. I suspect that's true. And even if we might say, well, we don't know that for sure, we can probably know for sure based on historical evidence that the king's food had at least been offered to pagan idols. My hunch is that you're right, that it really is related to the the king being seen as a deity and the king worshiping false deities. And that was where Daniel and those three friends drew the line. They weren't going to participate in anything that would put them in any way as observing pagan worship to a false god. Now, you know, one of the things about all of this situation that is so interesting, and I know Adventism taught us that this was about resisting appetite, resisting meat, resisting delicacies and desserts on the king's table. There's nothing here to indicate that. This is not about vegetarianism, in spite of what Ellen White said, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But think about what the circumstances were for these Israelites who'd been taken into Babylon. They were taken away from Jerusalem, away from the temple, where no form of Jewish worship could be participated in because there was no temple. They could not offer sacrifices. They could not offer incense. They could not do any of their God-ordained worship practices. God is the one who did that. Again, the sovereign God, and we have not yet seen the old covenant fulfilled by Christ, and yet God took his people out of the land, out of Jerusalem, and he made it impossible for them to practice their Jewish religion. They had to remain faithful to God in their hearts. Mm-hmm. And Daniel is remaining faithful to God because for some reason the king's food felt like a a line he could not cross because it would defile him and it would be a sin. It would somehow put him in participation with pagan deities and he was not going to go there. And this is the man who couldn't offer sacrifices, who couldn't have a priest intercede for him. All of that was stopped during the exile. There was no provision for sin, and there was no expectation that they would go around stoning each other when when they sinned. 
So God's grace was covering them even during his discipline of them. That's right. That just doesn't fit with the great controversy worldview. It just doesn't fit with the idea God's people for all time are to uphold the Ten Commandments forever to a watching universe and never fail, never fail to keep them because it's our job Mm -hmm. to vindicate God's character. God wasn't worried about that during this time. Not at all. And yet he's honoring Daniel and his three friends for their integrity to him. But here's the thing. Ellen White made it sound like God will honor those who discipline themselves and resist their appetites and their flesh and their temptations. And then he will honor them for that. When what's really going on here is God is sovereign Daniel knows God is sovereign. Daniel worships the God of heaven, and God honors Daniel because it is God's plan to honor Daniel, and God keeps Daniel faithful. It's not the other way around. Yeah, we see in verse 9, it was God who granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. He was sovereignly at work, even in the will of the unbelieving. I get tired of hearing Adventists say that it's all about God protecting our will. God says in his word that the king's heart is water in his hands. He moved in the heart and the mind of these commanders to give Daniel favor and compassion in their eyes. Well, Nikki, we both found some Ellen White quotes that help us understand where Adventists come up with this idea that Daniel was holding on to vegetarianism as a message against the pagan king, which absolutely isn't the case. Can you read some that you found? So, I found a couple of quotes from a book called The Sanctified Life by Ellen G. White. (laughs) And this is taken from chapter two. The chapter is titled Daniel's Temperance Principles. Oh, there we go. She said, Daniel requested that the matter be decided by a 10 days trial. The Hebrew youth during this brief period being permitted to eat of simple food while their companions partook of the king's dainties. The request was finally granted, and Daniel felt assured that he had gained his case. Although but a youth, he had seen the injurious effects of wine and luxurious living upon physical and mental health. At the end of the ten days, the result was found to be quite opposite of Melzar's expectations. Not only in personal appearance, but in physical activity and mental vigor. Those who had been temperate in their habits exhibited a marked superiority over their companions who had indulged appetite. As a result of this trial, Daniel and his associates were permitted to continue their simple diet during the whole course of their training for the duties of the kingdom. So apparently, it wasn't just a matter of them being fatter, (laughs) like the text says. Yes. They actually had a marked superiority over their companions in their physical activity and mental vigor. And that is not what the text is saying here. So then I also have one here from uh, the same chapter under a subheading, a self-control, a condition of sanctification. Oh, there we go. Now, I did learn that very deeply taught to me as a child. She says, the life of Daniel is an inspired illustration of what constitutes a sanctified character. It presents a lesson for all and especially for the young. A strict compliance with the requirements of God is beneficial to the health of body and mind. In order to reach the highest standard of moral and intellectual attainments, it is necessary to seek wisdom and strength from God and to observe strict temperance in all the habits of life. In the experience of Daniel and his companions, we have an instance of triumph of principle over temptation to indulge the appetite. It shows us that through religious principle, young men may triumph over the lusts of the flesh and remain true to God's requirements, even though it cost him a great sacrifice. She goes on and says, what if Daniel and his companions had made a compromise with those heathen officers and had yielded to the pressure of the occasion by eating and drinking as was customary with the Babylonians? That single instance of departure from principle would have weakened their sense of right and their abhorrence of wrong. Indulgence of appetite would have involved the sacrifice of physical vigor, clearness of intellect, and spiritual power. One wrong step would probably have led to others until their connection with heaven be severed. They would have been swept away by temptation. Their salvation hung on whether or not they were going to eat meat, you know. 
Yes, and I learned that. I learned that eating meat would diminish my ability to be responsive to God and to hear the Holy Spirit. I learned it would make me ultimately sick and incompetent and weak-minded. This is what our legacy from our old prophet was. Adventists still use this chapter from Daniel as the evidence that vegetarianism is superior to meat-eating. That's not what this chapter is about at all. Not at all. No. Colleen, you found some great quotes. Okay. Well, this is from Volume 11 of Letters and Manuscripts, written in 1895. And here's a few quotes. Daniel understood that he himself was to be first attended to. His diet must be regulated by the knowledge God had given to his instructors for his benefits. He was temperate in eating. Now, just by the way, Nikki, she keeps talking about temperance. Does this passage in Daniel mention temperance at all? No, not at all. So she goes on, he governed his appetite, not following impulse, but sound reasoning from the standpoint of, get this, Christian temperance. Now, where does she get Christian temperance in the time of Daniel? Just saying. He had offered to him wine and meat and luxuries from the king's table, but he refuses this. And the explanation, and get this, the explanation he gave was that the mind must not be clogged with these articles, which, if he should eat, would be difficult of digestion. <laughs> Even in articles of healthful food, there must be a restriction of the quantity taken. Well, what's wrong with that? All of it? That's not in the passage of scripture. It's nowhere in there. I can't figure out where she got that from. Did she describe that in one of her other books? No, actually. A vision? She just says that he gave the explanation that he couldn't eat this stuff because it would clog his mind and make it difficult to digest. <laughs> no! You guys, you have to remember our podcast series through the fundamental beliefs. This woman was sent to Adventists, allegedly by God to speak as a prophet for God, interceding between God and humanity, yes. a lasting message. And this is what she told us. She's adding to scripture. I think Deuteronomy chapter 18 says something about that. Oh, yes, it does. Well, she goes on in this manuscript. The food placed in the stomach Daniel had under his own control. Therefore, he could cooperate with God in keeping his stomach in a healthful condition by not benumbing his sensibilities by overeating or by the use of wine and flesh meats, which are not healthful or necessary for physical strength. A proper regard for the articles of food eaten would keep a healthful current of blood flowing through his veins, and his mind and body would be in a condition for hard, stern labor, for mind and body would not be oppressed with a variety of flesh meats. So she's essentially accusing Daniel of breaking God's law, who commands him to eat the Passover lamb. Yes. Because he won't partake in flesh meats. This is a different Daniel. She has a different God, a different Jesus, a different gospel, and apparently a different Daniel. This is not the Daniel of Scripture. And this is not the story that the book of Daniel tells us. This is an Ellenized version of it that was used to compel the consciences of Adventist children and adults. But I say children first because like you showed me yesterday when you sent me that picture from the Bible stories, the pictures of the Bible stories of Daniel show him resisting all the fancy food on the king's table. And that's imprinted in the minds of Adventist children that we are going to have temperance, we're going to have self-control, and we're going to fight appetite. You know how often Ellen White makes appetite the bottom line for sin? She says that Adam and Eve's first sin was the sin of appetite. She says that Jesus's resistance of Satan in the wilderness was that he overcame the temptation to appetite and succeeded in that where Adam failed. That isn't the issue at all. It's not about what you eat. There's one more quote from this passage that I'm going to read. The Lord can impress the mind if it is in a healthful condition. Then the human agent and God are in co-partnership. 
The created human agent and the creator are working to make man in every sense complete in Jesus Christ. There is no war instituted by the human agent against the law of his being. Daniel purposed in his abstemious habits of non-use of meat to glorify God. The blessing of the Lord attended the youth who would, through love and fear of God, discard everything they deemed detrimental to their advancement in their physical, mental, and moral perfection. It's no wonder that Adventists grow up with such an abhorrence and a fear of meat. This is not what the Bible says. This is not what Daniel did. And notice what she says, that by not eating meat, she equates that with keeping the mind in a healthful condition. And if your mind is in a healthful condition, then the human agent and God are in co-partnership to make man in every sense complete in Jesus Christ. She is completely taking out what the New Testament says, that our sanctification is entirely the work of God. We do not help God make us complete in Christ. When we trust Jesus, we are given a new heart, a new spirit, we are born of God, and we are sealed with the indwelling Holy Spirit. It is God who protects us. It is God who makes us His. It is God who changes us, and then we are to walk in Him the same way we believed in Him. He sanctifies us. We learn to trust Him. She taught us works. And she used Daniel to teach us works, and it was all centered around what became known as the health message. I know a lot of Adventists will say, I do these things to be a good steward of my temple, or I do these things to show God that I love Him. But she made clear in some of her other quotes that not doing these things would sacrifice one's salvation and connection to God altogether. She lied to us in a word. She lied to us. And the Adventist health message has been based on additions to Scripture, misusing the Word of God, and all of this done by the prophet. And you know, I know most Adventists don't even understand that their view of Daniel 1 is shaped by Ellen White. But when you read Daniel 1, you come up with none of this stuff about being unhealthful if you eat meat. The entire thing was that for Daniel, there was sin involved. It was involving Daniel refusing to do something that would put him in league in worship of a pagan god. Daniel would not compromise his worship. It wasn't about food. So, as I was preparing for this, I listened to the second talk of the 2016 FAF conference that Gary did on Daniel. And he had some thoughts about the way Daniel handled this request to not be defiled with the king's table. And I love what he said. He said, what strikes me about Daniel is that he not only knew where to draw a line in his own life, he knew how to draw a line. And this is the part of the story that becomes even more relevant to us as we think about this, because it is not necessarily hard to have convictions, but we can have our convictions in the hardest possible way that produces conflict and challenge rather than gracious standing for the cause of Christ. And I had never noticed this until he pointed it out, but that chief of officials or chief of eunuchs told Daniel he was concerned about his own head. He was concerned about his position before the king. And Daniel then went to the next person. He went to the overseer and requested that he test them for 10 days. He took all the risk on himself. He pointed out that he was careful and respectful of the people over him in the way that he went about handling this. And related to that, I did really appreciate Gary's sentence where he said, convictions without courage have little value. And Daniel was convicted and he had the courage to go up the line of authority to relieve the fears of the lower official, to take the risk on himself, as you just so excellently explained, and to make a deal with the guy who was in charge of all of them, including his immediate superior. Yes. And he said, we need to have the wisdom of Daniel to think, how do I make a principled stand in my culture, showing the love of Christ, but at the same time, showing the courage that God, the Holy Spirit gives to me, 
How do I live out my faith in a principled way in which the principles are clear and strong, but also in a grace way? And Daniel really does do that. I mean, he wins the heart of the kings he serves. That's right. He does. And can I just say before we move on that I love verse 15. (laughs) Verse 15 says, At the end of the ten days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who'd been eating the king's choice food. They were eating vegetables uh-huh. and water. Yeah. But their appearance was fatter. That's an act of God. That is not nutritional. <laughs> no, it's not. And it was never about weight loss. No. I mean, that's a great point, Nikki. <laughs> the Daniel diet is not about weight loss. <laughs> they were fatter. Well, let's end this chapter, verses 18 through 21. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. That is an amazing summary of what happened. There's a lot here, and I'm going to start with the last verse, and Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. That... The first year of Cyrus the king, the king of Persia, was 66 years later after this presentation of these young men to the king. So we know that Daniel's service in the royal house of Babylon continued his entire life, decades, and he was superior and blessed by God. And it was not because he was a vegetarian. It was because (laughs) he honored God. Over those 66 years, he served four different pagan kings. So it wasn't just that he won the heart of one king and stuck in there the whole time. He was consistent in his character. And I want to point out that when he asked to only have vegetables and water, the text said that that was all they ate during their time of training. Yes. So we don't have any indication that those 66 years contained vegetarian eating. No. In fact, later we will see um, when Daniel is praying and begging God for an intercession in Daniel 9 that he stopped eating meat for two weeks while he prayed. So we know that Daniel did eat meat as he went through his life. He was not a lifelong vegetarian. So when the king gave them their oral exam at the end of their three years, he found them to be 10 times smarter than any of the people in all his realm. And Nebuchadnezzar was conquering a lot of the world at that time. His goal was to take down Egypt. Yeah. But these young men were smarter than all of them. And he inquired of them in all that they had been taught. And so we're talking about pagan ideas even. Right. Including, notice in verse 20, the magicians and conjurers, the pagan fortune tellers, if you will, they were even smarter and better than they were. And so these are not young men who took their stand saying, no, no, we will only learn the Torah. Right. But these were young men who were confident to know that only the Torah told them the truth. Yes. And they lived faithfully according to what they knew about their God. The entire thing was that Daniel and his three friends were loyal to God. It wasn't that they were loyal to an eternal law, because God had removed all the possibility of being loyal to that law he gave at Sinai. He took them away from Jerusalem, the city where he had put his name and where he had set up his temple. He took them away from the place of sacrifices where the priests could intercede and intervene. He took them away from all of that and put them in a pagan nation and caused them to serve a pagan king, and they honored God even when they couldn't perform their Jewish worship. It wasn't about their deeds. It was about their commitment to their sovereign God, whom they knew had placed them in this pagan nation. And one thing I thought was really interesting was that, you know, there were a lot of slaves taken, not only from Israel, but from other countries. And when the king examined these 
this class, if you will, that had gone through these three years of training, he found Daniel and his three friends to be superior. He didn't just assign them to a fleet of magicians or to a group of scholars. He took them into his own service in his own palace. They were his personal servants. They were that much superior. And it was because God blessed them. It was not because they were vegetarian. It was not because they wouldn't defile their stomachs. It was because they worshiped sovereign Yahweh God who had placed them in Babylon for a purpose. As we end this first chapter of Daniel, if you're realizing that you learned the story of Daniel wrong, that you learned that the most important thing was what you did with your body, what you put in your mouth, and what you did with your lifestyle, instead of learning that God is sovereign, He has no plan B. He is sovereign over your life. He is revealing Himself to you. You are not responsible for making other people become Adventist, but you are responsible for knowing and receiving the truth of Jesus and our Father and His Spirit as God reveals Himself in His Word. And if you realize that you've had a false conception of who God is, we pray that you will use this journey through Daniel to ask God to reveal Himself to you as He truly is, and ask Him to show you the reality that God the Son took your sin to the cross, that he died and was buried and rose again on the third day according to scripture, and that this God, even before Jesus came in the flesh, is the God that Daniel honored. This is the God that honored Daniel because of Daniel's faithfulness to him, and ask God to show you how to be faithful to him. And we pray that you will know him in a new way. If you have questions or comments for us, you can write to us at formeradventists at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. And we hope you'll continue to walk through the book of Daniel with us as we examine the incredible faith of Daniel in the incredibly sovereign God of human history. Join us next week as we examine the first 18 verses of the second chapter. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.